Welcome to the PEDSNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America, and today we're gonna take an exit on the conversation of human trafficking and how vulnerable youth can be victims of this crisis. Admittedly, there was a time when I first heard the term when I had a very cartoonish perspective of what human trafficking meant. I was thinking of cars on a highway and didn't understand how this related to my patients without realizing that it refers to the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, obtaining, patronizing, or soliciting of a minor under the age of 18 for the purpose of a commercial sex act. Human trafficking goes by other names too. Sex trafficking, child trafficking, commercial sexual exploitation of children, domestic minor sex trafficking, And trafficking can involve forced labor too, not just sex, although this illicit mistreatment is the focus of today's episode. Put simply, a victim is exploited to do a sex act, which could be stripping, massage parlors, escort services, pornography, prostitution, or any other sex-related work in return for some form of payment, either in money or goods. Today, we're going to shed that false caricature and focus on the children that find themselves victims of this horrible human rights violation so that we as pediatric providers can better serve our patients and advocate for vulnerable populations. We'll do this by asking some basic questions and answering with the best evidence we have and then provide resources for providers to help. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime found that of the 40,000 identified victims of trafficking, women and girls account for up to 99%, and children comprise one-third of the group. Why does this matter to the PEDSNP listener? Because 88% of child and adult victims encounter at least one healthcare provider without being identified as trafficked. So this means that there's an opportunity for us to do better at recognizing children, either at risk or actively engaged in human trafficking. How does human trafficking happen? Unlike my misconceptions, human trafficking doesn't have to involve the interstate movement of a patient in a car on a highway. It can, which makes perpetrators more elusive and the search for victims more difficult. But it could also happen locally, where a child could be a victim of a family member or trusted individual as their trafficker, who is pretty much a pimp who organizes all of the acts and payments. In many cases, a child is solicited to online and an adult builds a relationship with a child or adolescent who might be seeking love, validation, attention, or even shelter. After cultivating a relationship with a child and engendering a false sense of trust, They offer desirable things in return, clothes, gifts, getting their nails or hair done. But in order for the stream of gifts to continue, they must engage in sex acts. And they're often kept in this situation with physical and or psychological abuse to engender fear. A victim may even be controlled with drugs, whereby their addiction to the substance makes them even more dependent on their trafficker to get more. What are the risk factors associated with children who become victims? What do they look like? Any child can be a victim, regardless of their age, gender, race, socioeconomic status, or geographic location. But there are certain groups that are at greater risk. And when multiple risk factors combine, the possibility compounds. 
The greatest risk factor is a child who was previously a victim of sexual abuse. Mental health disorders in the patient or their family can also put a child at risk. Domestic issues contribute significantly to a child being recruited, particularly homelessness and poverty, children in state custody or foster care, and immigrant status. LTGBQ youth are also at increased risk because they have an increased risk of being ostracized or kicked out of their homes by their family, and they may seek safety, refuge, or acceptance. What are the signs that a child may be a victim of human trafficking? Providers in both acute and primary care should watch out for signs of human trafficking. Because as I said, 88% of victims are seen by a healthcare provider prior to being recognized. A child present with an adult who cannot prove themselves as a parent or guardian should raise some suspicion, especially when documents are lost or misplaced, a given date of birth doesn't match the apparent age of the child, or the adult seems too overbearing during a history, not letting the child answer for themselves. Look out for multiple physical injuries like bruising, scratches, broken bones, or dental injury especially when the explanation of causation doesn't match the injury. Drug abuse, especially polydrug use or drugs with highly addictive qualities like crystal meth, should raise trafficking suspicion. Recurrent visits for urinary tract infections, sexually transmitted infections, or pregnancy or abortion concerns are high-risk indicators. A known history of gang involvement or being arrested may signal an organized group that's exploiting a child. But signs might also be subtle, like chronic malnutrition and recurrent infections. Use your skin exam to look for tattoos or branding where a child has been marked by their abuser. Commonly reported tattoos include a dollar sign, barcodes, the words daddy, or referencing that they are someone's girl, or even bottom which refers to a girl who's being used to recruit other girls and therein she may be treated more favorably. What are the steps you can take once you suspect or know that a child is a victim of human trafficking? Just as with other forms of trauma, many child victims may not even recognize that they're being mistreated. They may be understandably fearful to disclose, or they may be conditioned by their abuser to distrust a provider. It may be necessary to separate a victim from the abuser by requesting a private exam or even changing the location where additional testing is necessary, something that has limited personnel access, like an x-ray, where non-essential personnel must stay out because the test involves radiation. Be non-judgmental and normalizing when you ask questions to assess the situation. Lots of teens your age use the internet to talk with friends and share stories about their life. Have you ever talked with strangers on the internet who became your friends? Or have you ever been messaged by an adult who offered you a gift in return for a favor? Then you can get more specific. Have you ever been pressured to do something you don't want to do? Have you ever had to have sex with someone to get what you need or want, like food, a place to stay, or clothes? Has anyone hurt you? Once you've identified your concern, the most important part for you as an individual provider is to start building a trusting and open relationship with the patient. It's important not to contribute more trauma to the situation, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. 
You'll want to mobilize your resources with a multidisciplinary team that includes social work and a SANE nurse. Next, you'll need to report the abuse to Child Protective Services, law enforcement, which may include local, state, and federal agencies, and the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Victims may need treatment of actual injuries, infection, addiction, mental health trauma, and certainly will need long-term counseling and support. To provide all of this care, it's important for a provider to use a trauma-informed approach and culturally competent response. Well, what does a trauma-informed approach and culturally competent response mean? It means leaving your biases at the door and recognizing your differences from that of the patient so that you are open and can create a safe space for disclosure and then best advocate for them. It's important to be aware of subtle indicators of trauma during your history and exam in order to avoid causing further trauma because questioning children in a well-intentioned but uninformed way can be triggering, jeopardize subsequent criminal proceedings, or risk violating trust. You should never conduct a forensic interview if you're not properly trained to do so, so know your limits. A trauma-informed approach involves five main pillars, the first of which is trust. Then we need to ensure safety, emotional and physical, and avoidance of re-traumatization. The next is choice. We can provide victims with control and choices around their care to avoid coercion to disclose their exploitation. Check in with them and see if they're okay after you ask a tough question. Ask for permission to examine them prior to touching. These simple offerings can make a traumatized patient feel less at odds with a healthcare provider and more in control. The fourth pillar is collaboration where you should share power and decision-making with a patient whenever possible as they move through the care system. Lastly, we should empower the victim and help them see that they deserve to be well cared for. I've used the term victim a lot through this podcast thus far, but that does not define them. And as we begin to get the patient into a safe place, getting the care and treatment that they need, we should use the term survivor to honor the past experience and provide messages of strength, resilience, and bravery. If you're not yet familiar with how to go about this process at your institution and in your state, make sure you inform yourself on the policies and protocols surrounding the care and reporting of human trafficking victims. How can we prevent this in the first place? The internet is a dark and scary place where children are often first lured So it's important for parents and primary care providers to assess a child's use of technology and educate on safe internet practices. For instance, well visits are an excellent time to assess what sites and apps a child uses and ask about what they would do if a stranger reached out to them directly on one of those sites. Then parents can be better informed about the conversations they need to have with children and adolescents about how to have a safe online presence. It's important for us to be open and straightforward about what human trafficking is, how it happens, and what to watch for. We should educate children and teens about what a healthy relationship looks like. And remember those risk factors for human trafficking include other issues that we as pediatric providers care deeply about and need to address as well. Domestic violence, physical or sexual abuse, food and housing insecurity, substance abuse, and mental health. 
By having an unbiased, holistic perspective on a patient's presentation and risk factors, we can keep human trafficking on the differential diagnosis and better identify and intervene to help victims get their lives back. For more information or to report suspected human trafficking, you can contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 888-373-7888, or you can text HELP or text INFO to 233-733. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the Peds NP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the Peds NP. You can see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You're learning it for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care. <laughs>